Hey, you're listening to Blue Jean Church's podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. To learn more about Blue Jean Church in Selma, Alabama, visit us at www.bluejeanselma.com. Y'all give it up for Bob. Awesome. Well, let's pray up and we'll get going. Um, Yeah, Lord, I just pray that um, the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight uh, and that your anointing and your power would fall on us right now. Amen. Okay, I was praying uh, this week. I asked about four or five people. It takes a while to get responses from people. You call or you leave a text or something, and then days go by or a day goes by, and pretty soon it's Wednesday, and uh, and you don't have anybody to speak. So uh, I'm, I'm, I defaulted to it to this week and was praying and asking the Lord uh, what, what he wanted to say, and I had Jonah on my mind. I can't tell you the last time I've read the book of Jonah. Great story. But, you know, I'm thinking, well, what is it about Jonah? So I read the book of Jonah and started digging into it and saw some things that I felt like the Holy Spirit really highlighted to me. And yesterday, Ann and I, uh, well, I, I was went down to Arsenal Place to check on the progress of the construction there and saw at the uh, 901 Gallery or whatever it is, 905 gallery, close enough. Uh, and I saw my grandson and family over there, and I ran down, ran into Bradford. Long story short, I ran into Bradford, and Bradford uh, said something about she taught on Jonah at the after school thing, isn't that right? Uh, at Clark school, Elementary School with our ministry at Clark. And she said, well, maybe that's a confirmation for what you're talking about this morning, and I thought it was too. So we'll see. I want to talk about Jonah. Jonah lived about 800 to 750 B.C., a long time ago. And y'all know the story of Jonah. You know, I'll tell the story, then we'll look at some scriptures, and then this is, this is a really interesting take on the story of Jonah, at least what came to me. Um, y'all know Jonah was a prophet. And he lived in, in Israel. He was, he was a Hebrew. And the Lord came to Jonah and said, I want you to go and warn the people in Nineveh, which is an, was the Assyrian capital in, in present-day Iran on the Tigris River. It was a long way away. I mean, they didn't have cars back then and interstates, right? And so Jonah, when he got the word... It says, the scripture says that he ran from God. And back in the day, he thought if he could get out of Israel, then God wouldn't follow him. But God, we know God's everywhere. And so he jumped on a ship and he was, he was leaving because he didn't want to go to Nineveh and talk to those heathens. Uh, and so big storm comes up and everybody on the boat realizes that Jonah is the problem. And so they throw Jonah overboard. <laughs> And the storm stops. And it says God provided a giant, a great fish that scooped him up. And y'all know the story. Jonah was in the belly of a whale or a big ship, big, big fish, 
for three days and three nights. And while he was there, he prayed this incredible prayer. We're going to look at it in a minute. And it says after he finished praying it, the Lord caused the giant fish to vomit him up on the dry land. And then the word of the Lord came to him the second time and said, go to Nineveh and tell them to change or they're in trouble. And so he did it that time. He went and he, he, he spoke to them. He told them what the Lord had told them. And Nineveh repented. They changed. Made Jonah furious. He was so mad. He was whining and fussing at God because they had changed and God didn't whack them. Jonah was saying, come on, give them the business, Lord. They're not Hebrews. They're not living right. They're not doing what should happen. Give them the business. Call down the thunder, Lord. And when the Lord was kind and gracious and compassionate, he was like, Dad, gum it, I knew it. I knew that's what you were. You were compassionate and loving and slow to anger. Dad, gum it. And so let's read a little bit about what Jonah, what the book of Jonah says. Starts out in chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of somebody. Go to the great city of Nineveh, 120,000 people. And the Bible says it took three days. I mean, it says it took three days to get through the whole thing, to walk it. That's pretty big. It says, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. And so Jonah... Being a good prophet, it says, but Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. All right, he's like, I don't want any part of that long trip. But I was thinking, it wasn't just a long trip. He didn't like the people. He didn't like what they were doing. You know, they weren't doing right. I don't like them. They're not one of us. They're not part of my tribe. I don't care about them. And so great storm comes up it says the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and a violent storm arose and the ship's sinking and all that and everybody on there figures out it's Jonah, they don't want to throw him overboard but Jonah says throw me overboard it's, I'm, the, I'm the one that's the problem so they do and it says in here in verse 17 they threw him overboard in a storm if you've ever seen a storm or, or, you know, the river is my, is my, that's my kingdom. And in the summertime, even on the river, you know, it's, it's fairly narrow and long. But even in the summertime here on the river, when there's a storm that blows up, there are whitecaps on the river. And I've been in my little John boat in the middle of one of those storms, and it was, it's scary. I had to pull off on the side and there's thunder and lightning everywhere and white caps and you know the dogs are like climbing all over me they're trying to get protected and all that I you know you've seen storms on on the uh, in the ocean terrifying absolutely terrifying and so they throw him over calms down but he goes down to the pit okay and it says you know he's gonna die you can't survive in a storm in the sea. He knows he's going to die. But it says here in verse 17, but 
the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. Made me think immediately when I saw that, but the Lord provided. I thought about Abraham and Isaac when God provided the ram in the bush to save Isaac. God provides in the middle of the storm, in the middle of the problem, in the middle of the hopelessness, in the middle of the terror and hard place, God provided the way. Now, I wouldn't want to be in the belly of a fish. I know about y'all, but that, that sounds gross. Fish stink, and you know what's in their stomach probably stinks worse, right? So he goes, he's in the belly of the whale for, or the fish for three days and three nights. And this is the incredible prayer that Jonah prays. It's unbelievable. Listen to what he says in chapter 2, verse 1. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. He recognizes that the fish was an answer to prayer. And he says, from the depths of the grave, I call from help, for help. He knew he was going to die. He's like, help me, Lord. I, I, I'm totally screwed up here. I have, I have no hope. I'm in despair. Help me. And he recognizes that the Lord did send help. He said, and you listen to my cry. You hurl, you hurl me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look again. I'll look again. That jumped out at me. It's like he has, he has turned his back on God. He's, he's left. He's trying to run from him. But he says, oh, God, I'll look again. I'll look again. I loved last week when Daniel Martin preached. I won't ever forget this. Daniel Martin, I told him this week, I called him on the phone. This is, a, this, is a, this is a rabbit trail, but it's a good one. I called Daniel, and I said, Daniel, thank you so much for preaching at Blue Jean. You are so awesome. And I said, you have a way of speaking to my heart. You have no idea. Just about every time I'm around you, you say something that God writes on my heart, and I'll never forget it. And I said, you did it last Sunday. You said... Close your eyes so that you can see. You can see with the eyes of your heart. I said, I'll never forget that. I'll never forget that. Oh, Jonah is seeing with the eyes of his heart. It's probably pitch dark in there. He doesn't have a big lighter. It's probably pitch black. But he's seeing that God saved him. And he's praying and he's saying, I know I've turned my back on you, Lord, but I'm going to look again. He's looking with the eyes of his heart. He can't see with his eyes, his natural eyes, but he's seeing with the eyes of his heart. And he's seeing God's provision. And he says, I'll look again towards your holy temple. Then he says, the, uh, the engulfing waters threatened me and the deep surrounded me. Seaweed wrapped around my head. I mean, this is graphic. Right? To the roots of the mountains, like in the ocean. That's like to the very bottom of the mountains. He said, I sank down. The earth beneath me barred me forever, but you brought my life up from the pit, O oh Lord my God. You saved me. 
when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayers rose to your holy temple. And this is, this is the line of all lines. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. There's, there is a weight on that word. And he said, I love this, but I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. He's grateful in the belly of the fish. He's thanking God. He's recognizing the idols that he was clinging to was forfeiting the grace that could have been his if he hadn't hung on to those idols. And he says, but with I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah out onto dry land. Boom. That's powerful. I don't know about y'all, but that's powerful. All right, and so then the word of the Lord comes to him again. He's like, go tell the Ninevites. And he's like, yes, sir. Hops on his donkey and he's off to Nineveh, right? Okay, and he goes. And it says, he says, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to them the message I give you. And Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. <coughs> In other words, you're fixing to get whacked. Stop doing what you're doing. And it says here, the Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he did the same. And he said, by the decree of the king, nobody's going to eat. Everybody's going to fast and, and, and put on sackcloth and repent for three days. He says in here, in verse 9, in chapter 3, who knows, God may relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and he didn't bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. God is a compassionate God. He's kind. He's loving. He doesn't desire. He wants good things for us. Abundant life. That's what Jesus said. I came to give you abundant life. Satan came to steal, kill, and destroy, right? And so look at Jonah's response. I love it. I love, you know, I used to... I used to read these things and think, God, Jonah, he was such a bad Christian. You know, he had a bad attitude. And uh, people that, like the, uh, John and James who wanted Jesus to zap a city because they weren't doing right. And Jesus said, you're sons of thunder. That's not, that's not my heart for them. You know, I'm like, yeah, give them the business, Lord. They don't measure up. Give them the business, and then you, when you realize that you're the one that's doing the same things, maybe in a different way, you're like, oh, God, thank you that you've put people in the Bible that show me their weaknesses and their, their struggles just like I have, and thank you so much for your kindness and forgiveness and mercy for me because I'm in the same boat that they're in. And so Jonah, who I used to judge, but now I'm like, thank you, Lord, that you put somebody like Jonah in the Bible because this is me sometimes. This is what he says. 
But Jonah was greatly displeased. And he became angry. He's mad at God. He's like, it!" And he prayed to the Lord. Listen to what he prayed. Listen to this prayer. This is absolutely unbelievable and good and honest and authentic and real. And not fake. He said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That's why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. And he says, Now, oh Lord, take me take away my life. For it's better for me to die than to live. He was like, I knew you were nice. I knew you were kind. I knew you were going to be compassionate to them. And look what they've been doing. They're not even a Hebrew. They're not even one of your chosen people. And look at what they've been doing. I mean, people have been people since the fall, right? What's going on today in the world where people aren't walking with the Lord? It's the same thing over and over and over. They were doing the same thing in Nineveh. They called it different things. It was a different time. They wore different clothes. They didn't have cars. But people are people. It's the same sins of the sinful nature. They're listed in the scripture. It's the same things. I won't list them and go into the list but it's the same stuff, so you can imagine what they're doing. And so old self-righteous Jonah, prophet of the Lord, Mr. Religious Guy that, you know, is God's using, he's mad at God for being kind and merciful and gracious to people that don't deserve it. Jonah didn't want the Syrians to get help. He didn't want them forgiven. He wanted God to give them the business. He wanted to zap them. They ain't living right. They're not one of us. I asked the Lord, when I read that scripture, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. I said, Lord, this is this week. I said, Lord, what are the idols that Jonah is clinging to? What are his idols? What's he talking about? And you know, for me, as I sat there, my initial thoughts were, don't make any graven images, right? So you don't want a little, you know, uh, a, you know, golden calf or something like that. You don't want something that's a, 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 an image of something that's not, not good and godly. And then I thought, well, you know, metaphorically, uh, idols can be sin. It could be addiction. It could be money. It could be status. It could be, you name it, comfort, football. Lord, you know, get behind me on that one. It could be anything, you know? And so I'm thinking of those. But I'm meditating. I'm just chewing on it. And I ask the question so I'm being still to give the Holy Spirit some time and space to speak. And what I heard 
And what resulted in that time took me to a deeper level in my eyes, maybe not yours, but took me to a deeper understanding of the idols that Jonah was hanging on to. Now let me tell you what he was doing, or at least what the Lord spoke to me and showed me what he was doing, and I do. I believe the idol that Jonah was hanging on to was that he was making God in his image, in Jonah's image. Instead of Jonah being made in God's image. You see, Jonah wanted God to be like Jonah. God want, Jonah wanted God to act like Jonah. He wanted him to treat people like Jonah wanted to treat him. And he was clinging to that. I want you to do what I want you to do. And God says, my ways are not your ways, Jonah. My thoughts are not your thoughts, Jonah. They're way higher than yours. And I am love. I am forgiveness. And I am good. And I am merciful. And you know what he told Moses when Moses said, show me your glory. And, and God showed up in front of Moses. You know what he said to him? Let's read it. Flip to Exodus chapter 33. This is an, an event in the Old Testament where Moses was bold enough to ask God to show him his glory and look at what God says about himself. In verse, chapter 33 in Exodus, verse 18, then Moses says, now show me your glory. We want God's presence here. We want him to manifest because he is everything. And he says, God says, I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. And then listen to what he says. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It's like it's not for you to decide who gets my mercy, who gets my love, who gets my compassion. It's not for you to decide that. That's up to me. And you know who's included in God's compassion and love and mercy because of the blood of Jesus? We all are. Jesus says in John chapter 3, Verse 16, he says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. There are two parts to that. The first part is he says he loved the world. He loves the Ninevites. He loves the Arabs. He loves the Russians. He loves the Chinese. He loves the Republicans. He loves the Democrats. He loves the Catholics. He loves the Protestants. He loves the Baptists and the Presbyterians and the non-denominationals. People that we differ with, that we don't see the same, he loves them. And Jesus died for them. Then there's a second part to that. 
It's not about universalism. There's a, there's a thing. You've got to believe in Jesus to enter the kingdom of heaven and be born again. But God loves everybody, even the Ninevites. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, you can't hate your enemies. You've got to love them. As a matter of fact, he says, pray for your enemies. And Jonah's like, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. They're not one of us. They're one of them. They're not living right. And so we want to judge. We want to, we want to, we, we want to set up rules and regulations to conform God to my image, what I want him to be instead of him conforming me to his image. That's what Jonah was doing. Grace, we talked about that two weeks ago. You remember when we were talking about grace with the Cinderella and the, and the fairy godmother and the wand and whing, giving, it's like a metaphor for God giving grace to people and transforming people from pumpkins to carriages and stuff like that. We used Cinderella as a silly metaphor for that. Well, grace, you remember, it's divine assistance. It's divine influence in someone's life. It's un, undeserved kindness, goodness, favor. It's the reagent in a chemical that changes things. That's what grace is. And so Jonah is saying you forfeit that divine assistance, that divine influence, that wing that changes things. So instead of wanting to give the Ninevites the business end of the stick, it's like, oh God, open their eyes that they would see. Have mercy on them. Not whack them. You know, I do this. I'm not talking at anybody. I'm convicted because I am human and we are all human and we are prone to do this. We want God to be who we want him to be and to think like what we do. And so we want to demonize Democrats or Republicans or whatever. And I've done it too. I've confessed and I'll confess it again today that when I left the church that I grew up in, I was hurt and I was mad and I talked about them. I said, they don't really know what they're doing. They're not really where we are. We're more spiritual and all that. And the Lord showed me and convicted me how wrong I was. That he loves them just as much as he loves us. And they have their place. And they have their lane. And I was to honor them and to bless them. And, and to not talk negatively about them or anyone else in the kingdom. So guess who I was? I was Jonah clinging on to my worthless idol that I had, my, had the spiritual walk figured out. I was sitting right here, right here in this sanctuary. And the thing I said when I drove away from our church that I love, I love the people there and I respect them and honor them. They're doing great things in our community. But when I left, I said in my truck, when I pulled out of the parking lot, I said, Lord, I ain't ever going back to stained glass. And so here we sit with unbelievably beautiful stained glass. And I'm sitting right here 
like a Friday before we dedicated this place for the first time. And I laughed out loud. I was looking at Jesus and I said, Jesus, I thought I told you I wasn't coming back to stained glass windows. And you know what he said back to me? Clears a bell. Bob, I can break even your religious boxes. And you know what I said back to him? I said, touche. I did. I said, well played, Jesus. You're right. I was wrong. I want to be like you, not you like me. You see? I don't want to make God in my image. I want to be like Jesus. I want to look at what he did and how he treated people, not how the world treats people and judges. You know, I've done this so much, and I'm convicted about this. When we've talked about the story of Zacchaeus, and that's, that's a story that I think really speaks to me about how we're to treat people that we identify and categorize as sinners. In chapter 19 in the book of Luke, the story of Zacchaeus is told. And when I first started walking with the Lord and was being exposed to his love and his goodness, I, I said, this sounds too good to be true. This can't be true that if we walk with you, Lord, that you forgive us, that you love everybody, and that you've paid the price forever. It's like, I don't have to work for it anymore. How could that be true? Show me in your word. And the name Zacchaeus pops out of nowhere. So I read the story, and I was like, well, there it is right there. And black and white is how Jesus treated Zacchaeus. And so I'm going to tell, a, I'm going to tell another, another me making God in my own, in my, in my idol. I'm going to tell another one on me. So I read that and I'm like, that's amazing. Zacchaeus, who's the chief tax collector, the worst sinner in town. You know what I've been saying all these years? He's the Jeffrey Dahmer of the times in, in Israel. I've used that metaphor as, as a description of how bad he was. I'm so convicted by that. Because you know what? As I'm sitting there and I'm reading it, the Holy Spirit brings that to mind. And he says, do you know what happened to Jeffrey? And I was like, no. He said, he came to believe in me. He's in heaven with me. And so I Googled it. I've got the story. It's a short story. But it's a story of what happened to the worst sinner in town, right? Please, Jesus, let me find this. I saved it. <laughs> I did. Thank you, Lord. Okay. It's written by Bobby Ross, who is editor-in-chief of the Christian Chronicle. Listen to this. It starts out, it says, in 1994, one of America's most notorious serial killers was attacked and killed while cleaning a prison bathroom. And here's the article. Few mourned the gruesome end of Jeffrey Dahmer, who strangled and dismembered 17 boys and men and cannibalized some of them. Most people wanted Jeffrey Dahmer to fry, Episcopal theologian Kendall Harmon said after Dahmer's death in 1994. Now that he's dead, they're celebrating and they're absolutely sure he will burn in hell. 
because that's what happens to people like him. Harmon, whose doctoral work at Oxford University covered 20 centuries of teachings about hell, told Scripps Howard News Service religious columnist Terry Mattingly, but did Dahmer go to hell? Or is there a chance that we'll see him, Brother Dahmer, that is, in heaven? How you answer that may depend on whether you believe God can work miracles in hearts and minds, even behind bars. If you brush aside prison ministry, when Dahmer died, Dahmer died, I was a staff writer for the Oklahomian. I'll never forget talking that day to Kurt Booth, a member of the Crescent Church of Christ in Oklahoma, about his role in Dahmer's conversion. I know Jeffrey was ready, Booth told me. Today, all the angels in heaven are rejoicing because Jeffrey has come home. Booth said he had no doubt about the sincerity of Dahmer's conversion. On the great resurrection day, I'm expecting to see him right along there with Abraham, David, Isaac, James, John, and all the saints that have lived, up, lived right up to the modern day, Booth said. Booth usually ministered to inmates at prisons closer to home, but in April 1994, he caught a glimpse of Dahmer on television. Listen to this. Tell me, this won't convict you a little bit. Dahmer mentioned that he wished he could find a little peace, Booth said. The Oklahoma church member sensed what he considered the hurt in Dahmer's voice and eyes. Booth said, I said he thought, I know somebody who can give you that peace. And his name is Jesus. Booth sent Dahmer a Bible correspondence course teaching the steps to salvation. Dahmer mailed the answers back and thanked Booth for the course. But I still have one problem, Dahmer wrote. The prison does, prison does not have a baptismal tank. And Mr. Burkham, the prison chaplain, is not sure if he can find someone to bring a tank in here and baptize me. I've taken all the other steps. He's given his life to Jesus. Booth contacted Roy Ratcliffe, minister of the Madison Church of Christ in Wisconsin. Ratcliffe set up weekly Bible lessons with Dahmer and baptized him on May 10th, 1994. Ratcliffe later shared that Dahmer told him he had been fearful of the minister's visit. Is that a condemnation on the church? That he would be afraid of having someone come to him because they're going to beat him up. Booth said he contacted other preachers besides Ratcliffe, but they were kind of scared to go in. Don't want to be around that guy. I would have been one of those. I've been using him as an example of evil. This brother in Christ. Booth himself served more than four years in Kansas prison for what he called thievery. Behind bars, he studied the Bible. However, he did not obey the gospel until years later. After prison, he drank, abused drugs, and ended up in a ditch after a drunken night hunting raccoons. <laughs> Might have been from Selma, I don't know. <laughs> when a doctor told him in 19, you didn't take him out coon hunting, did you, David? <laughs> he remembered all the promises he made to God in prison. He began to contemplate his eternal salvation. Booth called his nephew, a preacher named Phil Sanders, and asked what to do. Booth, his wife, Jenny, and three others studied with Sanders. All five were baptized in a pond behind Booth's house. 
An amazing change took place in Kirk Sanders, a speaker for the In Search of the Lord's Way television ministry in Edmond, Oklahoma, wrote in a tribute to his uncle's death. After his baptism, Booth led more than a 1,000 inmates to Christ, including Dahmer. Upon hearing of Dahmer's conversion, David Hartman, a member of Wiltshire Church of Christ in Oklahoma City, wrote to congratulate him. Dahmer sent Hartman $5 worth of stamps, asking him to mail him 25 copies of a Bible correspondence course for distribution to other inmates. Dahmer had become an evangelist. In one letter, Dahmer mentioned being attacked in Jan July 1994, months before he was killed. I don't know if you heard, but last Sunday I was attacked while in the chapel. And he said, but the Lord saved me. I'm not going to use Jeffrey Dahmer as an example anymore, as the metaphor for Zacchaeus, because Jeffrey Dahmer is a brother in Christ. And it's not for me to determine that. It's for Jesus to determine that. You see, I was making Jesus in my image. I was judging and placing judgment on Jeffrey Dahmer when Jesus didn't. Jesus loved him, accepted him, and forgave him, and he did the same thing to Zacchaeus. Just saying. You know, the older brother and the prodigal son and Zacchaeus, in that story, it's like the, the Jews, listen to this in chapter 19 of Luke, verse 7, when Jesus comes to Zacchaeus, the worst sinner in town, and says, hey, Zacchaeus, I want to hang out with you. I want to come eat at your house. You know what it says all the other Christians did, all the church people did? They said all the people saw this and began to mutter. He's going to be the guest of a sinner. And I've done it too. I'm not throwing shade on anybody. It's human nature to not want people that don't look, act, and think exactly like us to get the benefits of Jesus. But it says he came for the entire world because he loves the world. God so loved the world. Now, that is not a universalist statement because there's another, there's another part that the only way is Jesus. If you don't believe in Jesus and give your life to him, you know, I'm not sure that turns out great. But I know if you do, you're in by faith alone. By faith in Jesus alone. Not faith in Jesus and not doing the things that Jeffrey Dahmer did or whatever. I saw someone on, on a... Um, on, on a video, on a little clip on my Instagram, and it was a Christian. It's a Christian thing that popped up, and it, it, it was interviewing a guy that said, do you think people that live a li an alternative lifestyle are going to hell? And he said, absolutely. Well, you know what he did? He said, you, you're saved by faith, by grace, by faith in Jesus, and living the right lifestyle. That's what that was. He added another thing on there. Now, I'm not advocating. That's right. It says it's wrong in the scripture. So I'm, I'm, I'm in on that. But it is not a prerequisite and a qualification for the grace and mercy of God that Jesus gives us when he died on the cross. It is by faith alone that we are saved. 
and that is it. And if we add something else to it, you know what we're doing? We're creating an idol, a different kind of God. We're adding to the simple gospel. The simple gospel is Jesus died for us and our sins, and if we believe in him, you shall be saved. You are a family member, and that's it. Now, you gotta do that. Well, that's part of it, but repentance is coming to Jesus, David. That is repentance. Repentance is coming to God, and he cleans us up. He does. That is the point. And I think this is the strategy, the strategy that Jesus models. If you want to see the strategy, it's right here. Look at the woman caught in adultery. When, when she was sinning, she was doing wrong, and everybody knew it. Look, look in, look in uh, John. Uh, let me find it. It's, it's John chapter 8. Look at how Jesus handles this. When she's wrong as wrong can be. She got caught. Look at what Jesus says. It says, the Pharisees in chapter 8, verse 3, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. She got caught red-handed, and the law commanded us to stone such women. They were using a question to trap Jesus, and he bent down, and he straightened up, and he said, any one of you who is without sin, let him throw the first stone. Everybody leaves. Nobody can throw the stone because as I have demonstrated this morning, nobody in here is sinless. Nobody has that right. And look at what Jesus did. Look at how he modeled handling the sinner. Look what he did. This is Jesus. He stood up and he looks at the woman. He says, woman, where are your condemners? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no, sir. And he said, neither do I condemn you. And then he says, now go and sin no more. Look at the order. Look at the order. Love, compassion, mercy, grace. He doesn't on the sin and say it's not sin. But he talks about that second it's that old saying, people don't care what you know or how much you know until they know how much you care. I think that's what this is about. The Lord is trying to show us that the best strategy, the best, the best evangelism and discipleship strategy that Jesus models over and over is love them. Love them right where they are. And as you begin to develop relationship and as you begin to gain trust and show them that you are not judging and you are not condemning, then you can begin to speak truth. That's how it works. You don't on the truth and the sin. Sin, sin. And you do need to talk about it, but not out of order. It's love first, and then it's the other. And that is the model that Jesus uses over and over. You know, the Galatians did this. Saved by grace alone. 
And they started saying, yes, saved by grace alone, but you got to be circumcised too. And Paul rips them up. He's like, who, who bewitched you? It's nothing but saved by grace. You're in the kingdom. But once you get in the kingdom and you begin to experience love and you begin to walk with Jesus, then the transformation begins. And you will have a, an audience. You will have ears to hear the truth. But not if you start off with the heart. Truth has to be spoken in love. And then the scripture is very clear in Ephesians that we grow up into him who is the head when we speak truth in love. But it's got to begin with love. You know, one of the things I want to repent, and I have this week, I've repented of creating a false idol of who I want God to be. And Jeffrey Dahmer was an example the Lord used in my heart to show me where I was limiting God's grace and goodness. Maybe you've done the same. This isn't an easy message. I'm sure it, it is troubling. It's troubling to me too because I want God to look like me. I want him to do like I do and think like I think. But God's bigger than us and he's God. He gets to pick the way things happen and Jesus modeled it and if we are disciples and followers of the king, of the king of kings and lord of lords, then I want to act like him and I want to look like him, and I want to do like him in every way. We're going to finish with the song. It'll be an opportunity to uh, just worship. It's about God's love for us, that he doesn't ever leave us. He doesn't ever go beyond. Uh, he doesn't ever go beyond. We can't ever, we can't ever get further than him. He loves the world. That doesn't mean everybody's going to go to heaven, and that's why it's so important for us to be really good witnesses. And the word winsome, somebody used that one time, and I didn't know what it meant when I was an adult. <laughs> I was like in my 40s or 50s, and they said, so-and-so's a winsome witness. And I was like, what is that? I was like, yeah, they are. I had to go look it up. It means, it means desirable, drawing people in. Making people want what you have. We want to be winsome witnesses to bring people to Jesus. That's, that's the best way. That's what Jesus did. The ones he was hard on were the religious hoity-toity, hard-hearted people that thought they had it figured out. That's who he was hard on. I don't want to be that guy. Let's pray. Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, you are the spirit of truth. I don't want to misrepresent anything in your word, and I don't think I have. But, Lord, you, you reveal truth and bring truth to everyone in here. And teach us how to lay down any idols that we've made where we tried to create you in our image. We don't want to do that. You're king. You're boss king. You're sovereign, Lord, and you're good. We want to be like you and do like you, Jesus, in every way. Teach us, show us, and correct us where we are off base, me included. Show us, and we'll adjust. It's that simple. We don't want to be like Jonah was. 
We want to be like you. Now, Lord, come and move and have your way as we worship you in this last song. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. We hope this message has equipped and inspired you to transform people, your community, and the world through the love and power of Jesus Christ. Whether you're from Selma or anywhere you're listening from, we'd love to hear from you. Visit us online at www.bluejeanselma.com. Dot com.